Well, amen. It's sure good to be with you today. Um, if you're joining in person, we're glad you're here. If you're joining online, we're also glad you're here. Uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Bishop Jonathan. Um, <laughs> That's not actually my title, but uh, last week Annabelle uh, came and she was preaching and she preached it. Um, and she called me Bishop a few times. Did you notice that? I'm trying to get it to catch on. Um, like I've been asking my kids, my wife to call me Bishop. No dice. This is my pain. Um, but anyway, no, I'm glad you're here. Just call me Jonathan, I guess. Uh, so we're starting a new series today. We're calling it Christ-like. That is the name of the series. We're going to be in it for a month. The idea is this, uh, being like Jesus, being Christ-like, in many ways is the goal of the spiritual life. Whatever tradition you approach Christianity from, this is kind of what we're all after. That, not that we would all be the same person and have the same personality, but that we all, in ways unique to us, would embody the life of Christ as we walk out into the world. And so so we're responding the way he would respond and we're engaging the way he would engage. That's kind of the goal of the Christian life. And what we thought we'd do over these next four weeks is focus especially on uh, what he did. It's easy when you look at the Gospels to just get caught up in what he said because that's incredibly important. But we thought we'd take four weeks and just look at, hey, what manner of life did he live? How did he conduct himself? So that's what we're going to do. And I want to get us started today uh, introducing kind of a big picture concept that'll be the foundation of this, but I, I, I feel compelled to talk about something that's uh, painful to talk about, painful for me to talk about at least. Um, I think it's probably painful for some of you all, but it's something that is happening right now that's unfolding in our world in, in like our little tribe of evangelical Christianity. And I think it goes straight to the question uh, of how do we become like Jesus and do we really know in churches how to help people become like Jesus? Uh, I would maybe phrase the question this way. I don't know if, if you've ever had this thought. I've had it multiple times. Why is it possible for some people who know the most about the Bible to be the least like Jesus? Have you ever considered this? Um, people who are learned, people who lead others, people who stand on stages, sometimes walk off that stage and fail to embody Christ-likeness. And the illustration of this that I think is unfolding in our world, you may have heard of in these last few weeks, it's in our camp of evangelical American Christianity, uh, is this. About a year ago, at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, majority of the delegates forced the denominational leaders uh, to launch an independent investigation into how they've handled reports of abuse. Um, and they just concluded that investigation a couple weeks ago. The findings came out. A little bit of context, uh, you know, in evangelical Christianity, the Southern Baptist denomination is the largest denomination. Uh, it accounts for about 13 million plus people worldwide, 14,000 plus churches. Um, to be a Southern Baptist church, you have to do two things. We're not a Southern Baptist church. Uh, but to be one, you have to sign off on the Baptist faith and message, and then you have to give to the cooperative missions program of the Southern Baptist church, and that's what makes you a Southern Baptist church. I, some of you know, was ordained in 2000 as a Southern Baptist pastor, um, and then I came to Pulver Rock in 2004, so you could say I've missed a few meetings here and there, um, but uh, that, that is in my background, and this is 
a significant part of evangelical Christianity, and so I think it warrants a little bit of a conversation. So about a year ago, some of the Southern Baptist pastors in the denomination forced this investigation. They hired an outside organization, and they spent a year doing one of the most thorough and deep dive investigations of its kind into these allegations. And what they found, um, just, it's just painful. Um, it's just heartbreaking. Uh, but what they found is over the last couple of decades, the highest authority within the Southern Baptist denomination, which is something called the Executive Committee, received um, hundreds, possibly even thousands of credible reports of abuse by their pastors. Uh, and they actually compiled a list over two decades of 700 plus pastors of theirs that were involved in this abuse. And consistently, for 20 years, they chose to do nothing and say nothing. And it wasn't an omission. They chose to do nothing and say nothing. They didn't revoke one pastor's ordination, uh, they didn't warn one church. They didn't investigate one claim. They didn't speak publicly about the dangers of pastoral abuse. And of course, you can imagine that created an environment, not just where abuse happened, but where abuse was perpetuated. And many of the people on this list have been at multiple churches. And so one victim of abuse turned into many victims in many locations over many years because they did nothing. Um, I, I think there's something in this story that's more than just a news story, but it goes to this question of discipleship and growth and what are we doing here as churches? One of the things the investigation revealed is that those people at the highest level consistently, both publicly and privately, gave two reasons why they should do nothing. So this was a rationed thing that they concluded we should do nothing for these two reasons. The first was this. They said local churches have autonomy. That's how they structure the denomination. There's the main governing body, but the local churches are kind of on their own. They said local churches have autonomy, and if we try to step into these situations, then the entire denomination could be liable. So to protect the denomination, we have to do nothing. Um, and there's some truth to that. There is a cost, potential cost, always to doing the right thing. And there would have been shots fired had they come out publicly with this stuff. What is stunning to me is that they saw it over 700 times and said the cost is too high. We're going to do nothing again. And then also, if you know something about our Southern Baptist brothers and sisters, is a little off-brand for them. They're not known to not say things publicly. In fact, very famously publicly, they came out against Saddleback Church for ordaining women and Lake Point Church for having Beth Moore preach on Mother's Day. And they came out and condemned that. And so they're condemning churches where women are preaching, but where abuse is happening, they're saying nothing because of the liability implications. The second reason they gave was this. <clears throat> Uh, this was summed up by one of their committee members who said, uh, as the investigation got underway, he said, these accusations of abuse were, quote, a satanic scheme to completely distract us from evangelism. So we don't want to address rampant abuse 
because we might incur some liability and we don't want to address rampant abuse because it might get in the way of telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, This was not a good decision from a mental health standpoint, but I read like hours of this stuff in the report last week. And, um, you know, after reading hours of that, I was, you know, I was not, I just kind of have a visceral reaction to it. Uh, First, like part of me just wanted to vomit. Like I just, I am so sick of men in power choosing to protect their power instead of do the right thing. I think of all people groups, we Christians should know what power is for. It is to do good, right? It's not to hang on to, but it's to do good. Um, And then, you know, I mean, I'm not saying this so you'll feel sorry for me, but I like just being transparent. There's part of me that after reading all this stuff, like I just kind of wanted to quit. I'm not gonna quit, I love my job, but I just was like, I don't wanna be a pastor. I was embarrassed to be a pastor. Um, it made me so deeply sympathetic to every person who chose to walk away from church for good because of stuff like this. And I know some of you, I know some of you who've considered that. You know, we people who claim to have spiritual authority, we can be so ugly sometimes. Um, and, and I just I want to say this as a pastor. Um, sorry, it makes me emotional, but I, like I just like truly am sorry. And I know um, I know it's not enough. I know there are people. Um, who worship online with us because this experience is too triggering. Um, And if you're still hanging in there, I'm so deeply sorry for what we've done to you and I'm so impressed with your courage to try to be involved in the body of Christ. No one has any right to treat your pain or anyone's pain as an inconvenience to our vision and our mission and our church goals, right? We should incur liability. Your pain doesn't get in the way of church. Your pain should be welcomed at church because that's what church is for. It shouldn't be covered up. Um, And, you know, I... I'm taking some leeway because I, this is my background, Southern Baptist, but um, I don't want you to think I'm coming down too hard in the denomination. Some of the goodness of the story is that it was Southern Baptist pastors who raised up the call uh, to change things and forced this action. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, there are people in that denomination saying never again. Um, and hopefully there will be some sweeping changes that are too late for some Uh, but might be good for the future. I know that's a heavy story um, that goes straight to what we are doing here when we gather. Um, 
Obviously, there's some grief there. There's some anger there. There's some hard questions. And I think there's some questions that we have to wrestle with about what does it mean to be at a church? What does it mean to grow spiritually? And what does even spiritual growth look like? How can you even recognize it? I think the question I asked at the beginning is a part of that. Why is it possible for some people who know the most about the Bible to be the least Christ-like? I don't know these men individually, but like this, we do need to recognize it was not a couple of random dudes who did this abuse and covered it up. These were seminary trained, lifelong pastors, church leaders, people who spent years learning how to study the Bible, years training and teaching other people. Here's what the Bible says for you. And yeah, I just can't think of a more biblically illiterate thing to do than to silence a victim of abuse. How do you get that out of the pages? Like, I can't. It illustrates something that is true. We all know it's true in our souls, but we need to say it again and again and again because it is irrefutable. Biblical knowledge, spiritual authority, and leadership success do not equal Christ-likeness. They're independent things. You can have one and not the other. Uh, they, They just... They just are not related sometimes, tragically. So how do we get at Christ-likeness? Well, uh, there are some good people in the Southern Baptist Church. One of my favorites is a man who since went to be with the Lord, Southern Baptist pastor named Dallas Willard. You should read uh, Divine Conspiracy and all the other stuff that he wrote. Uh, But he's one of the really good ones, a hero of mine. Um, He said this, We can become like Christ by doing one thing. Whatever you put in that next blank is going to define your life. Here's what he put. Following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. So it's not learning about him. It's not gaining the respect and admiration of others. It's not having success in ministry. It is by imitating his life and learning his ways so that they authentically become our ways. That is the goal of the spiritual life. And so it's important, it's incumbent upon us that we have a good definition of what are his ways. There's a lot of ways we could define that. I I like what we've been doing this last year. We've been in the Minor Prophets. I would say it this way. Jesus is the embodiment of everything the prophets taught us this year. Love, mercy, compassion, justice, humility. That's Jesus' ways. That's who he is. That's how he conducted himself in life. You will note, protecting yourself from liability does not appear in that list. You also note this. If the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Church would have taken any of those five words and pulled it out of the pages of Scripture and just looked at it and said, hey, how could we do that in this moment? Any of those five words would have led them to some different conclusions. But this is a caution, and it's not a caution for those people. It's a caution for us. You can know a lot about Jesus and not actually be much like him. All of us are capable of doing that. And so my hope these next four weeks is just this. Let's start with a blank page for a second. Forget what we know, and let's just take another look at the man, the man that we follow. Let's look at how he conducted himself. What were his actions? What weren't his actions? And let's consider what does it look like to follow him in the overall manner of life that he embraced. 
I want to start us off with an early on story from Jesus' life out of Luke chapter 2. So find your way there. Um, Luke 2 is an interesting section of scripture. It's, it, it is precious because it contains the only credible story from Jesus' childhood. Uh, you'll note this in the Gospels, it like starts with the birth of Jesus, which we look at over Christmas, uh, and there's all this stuff around the Christmas story. And then it fast forward like to his 30s, where he has this public ministry, and there's virtually nothing in between except for this one story in Luke chapter 2. And so I thought, that's a pretty good place to start with 12-year-old. Jesus. That sounds about my speed. So Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Here's what it says. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. So you might remember from the Christmas story, Jesus is born. Herod the Great, who's the king at the time, tries to kill him. Uh, His parents are warned in a dream, so they flee to Egypt. After Herod dies, they come back and they settle in Nazareth, which is up in the region of Galilee, and it's about 65 miles away from Jerusalem. So you get some sense of how devout and serious Joseph and Mary were about their faith. Every year, at least once a year, they would travel the 65 miles on foot to be in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. Now, it it just casually mentions this, that Jesus was 12 years old. That might mean nothing to us, but if you were uh, in the first century, you would note that the age of accountability for Jewish boys is 13. So Jesus is right before that. What the age of accountability means is you become an adult. That's when you become accountable to God for your actions, for your sins, for all this sort of stuff. So at 12, Jesus would still be considered a child. Here's what happens to 12-year-old Jesus. Verse 43, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. (laughs) Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. I, if you've ever been a parent of children, like you know, they don't always stay, put, uh, stay where you leave them, right? And so, like you've had this moment where you look around and you're like, I have lost my child, right? Uh, what is stunning to me about this moment for Joseph and Mary <laughs> is like for a day, it didn't occur to them. Are they just the worst parents in the world? What is happening? Um, it's not actually that. What, what is likely happening here is in first century Judaism, the men and the women would travel separately and the children would typically travel with the women for propriety's sake. And so I can't prove this, but here's what I suspect happened. They travel for a day and Joseph is thinking, well, he's 12, so naturally he's going to be with the women because he's still a child. And over in the women's area, uh, Mary is thinking, well, he's almost 13, so I bet he's with his dad because he's almost a man. And then they get together that night and they have this moment of eye contact where they're like, we've lost God. I just, (laughs) how could you lose God? He's everywhere, but he's not here. Do you have him? Um, They're probably flashbacks to all those moments when the angels appeared to him and they're like, oh, we had one job. (laughs) Um, I bet these next three days were some of the longest of their lives. I mean, probably with the exception of those other three days. But these three days were probably pretty long also. Uh, Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? They did not understand what he was saying to them. There's a few things to unpack there. Um, in this exchange. Initial observation here, what Jesus is pointing out to his mother, she's like, what did you do? Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not lost. I know exactly where I am. Just because you don't know where I am doesn't mean I'm lost. And I think implicit in that, part of what he's starting to say to his mother that she didn't fully understand at the time, but she eventually would, is he was starting to say to her, I don't belong to you. You know, I actually, I belong to God and I'm going to do what he asks of me. I, I, I respect you, but I've only been entrusted to you for a moment. Eternally, I belong to God. Now, we look at that and we think, well, yeah, he's Jesus, so he gets away with this sort of stuff. But this is true with every child, isn't it? This is a hard thing to hear as a parent, but boy, do we need to. Our kids do not belong to us. They just don't. And the dream is not that your kid will do everything you want them to do. That's not the dream. The dream is that one day your kid will grow up and stop listening to you because they're listening to God and they're doing everything he asked them to do. And I promise you, there will be moments where he asks them to do something and you're like, God, you never talked to me about that, but they should do it, right? That's what Jesus is starting to do here. He's starting to reveal, this is what I'm about, the mission of God. And I'm going to hear it directly from him, not just through the voice of mom and dad. It's a remarkable moment from a parenting perspective. Here's how the story ends, verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So, Interesting story. Let's not get caught up in the words. Let's just make some observations about his general manner of life. How did Jesus live? Here's like one really striking observation that stands out to me. We see Jesus is committed to his own growth and development. That's what he's doing, right? Like, he didn't choose to abandon his parents. That's not what's going on here. He's not like, oh, mom and dad are so strict. I want to do my own thing. That's not what's happening here. Like, what he chose to do is to stay in the temple to study and learn. That was the choice that Jesus made. And so what we see Jesus doing is he's treating his relationship with God the Father as paramount, as the driving force in his life. And he's saying, I want to put myself in a position to grow and develop and learn. Now, it gets confusing when you think about the Trinity and you think about the story. Like, it's a little mysterious. You think about Jesus as God. He's all-knowing God, but he's also learning. I don't know how that works. Or you think about Jesus, who is fully God, just like God the Father, and they're three, but they're one. And so Jesus is prioritizing his relationship with his Father, who is also himself. And it just gives you a headache if you think too much about it. But I want to give you a theological term so that we can kind of glimpse what is happening here. The term is kenosis comes right out of Philippians 2, and it refers to this idea that while Jesus is fully God, he never stopped being God at any moment, like he was always fully God, but he temporarily uh, emptied himself of some of the privileges of being God so that he could live as fully a human, right? 
And that is a little confusing, a little bit mysterious, but we see it play out in a fascinating way in Jesus' life in a number of different places. Uh, most notably here, Jesus learned like any other human. And we understand this intuitively. He wasn't born like walking and talking and saying, well, let me tell you something about God. No, like he, he had to learn how to walk, learn how to talk. He had to set aside the privilege of being all-knowing God so that he could grow up like he is doing here. And so I think the overall principle that we have to observe is that even though he was fully God, as a human, Jesus prioritized his own spiritual growth and development. That was his style of life. We see it at 12. We see it throughout his entire life. This is what is happening when he pulls away and he leaves the crowds and he gets by himself and he spends time with God. Even though he was God, he was prioritizing his spiritual life and his life with God as paramount. So if we want to be Christ-like, I think that's one place that it starts. It's not just knowing something about Jesus, but to embody his way of life means we prioritize our own spiritual life, our spiritual growth, our spiritual development. And somehow, what that means, obviously, is more than just being educated. I love education. Education is important. But I think what we've seen time and time again is that educated people are not necessarily more Christ-like And you can know something about something and still not embody it very well. This is what the SBC events are teaching us, that there's more than just acquiring spiritual knowledge. There's like a deeper level of learning that is happening there. Uh, And you can on the surface know all the things, but there's like a deeper encounter with the truth that has to happen for you to become Christ-like. Let me illustrate this with a theory that comes out of the world of education. Do you all know, have you ever heard the phrase, Bloom's Taxonomy of Learning? Okay, I got a yes from somebody out there. Awesome. Uh, Bloom's Taxonomy of Learning, it's this uh, approach to education. It's a theory that differentiates between different forms of understanding. And it says to know something, uh, it actually has some levels to it, right? And so uh, it's progressive. The first three levels are this. Bloom's taxonomy describes remember, understand, and apply as like a base level of knowledge. This is just the beginning of it. So if you, if you know something, you know the facts about it, you know what they mean, you can somehow use that information in some meaningful way. If you've done that, then you've acquired some knowledge. You are beginning the learning process, but it's a, a pretty baseline uh, level of learning. Let's take Jesus as an example. If we went to school, to learn about Jesus. Um, Let me just take a fact about Jesus. Like Jesus is loving. Could we all agree? I don't want to split the room here, but would we all say, yes, this is a fact about Jesus. He is loving. Okay, good. We've remembered. We can recall the facts that Jesus is loving. Um, We might ask this, or, or we might observe this. That love meant that he sacrificed himself for others. Would we all say, yeah, that's kind of how the love manifests itself in self-sacrifice. And if somebody wanted to be like Jesus, then they too should sacrifice themselves for others. We would probably all agree. That's a good application of the sacrificial love of Jesus. That's a base level of understanding, but it's not very deep and it's not very proficient in knowledge about Jesus' love. There's these other levels that Blooms identifies, analyzing, evaluating, creating. 
And the theory says that when you've really become knowledgeable about a subject, then you don't just stay at that base level, but you're able to go to the next level. You're able to know, hey, what is really aligned with that idea and what just appears to be aligned but isn't? You're able to see, well, what's a better version of that idea? And how can it shape maybe some future thinking for me? You're able to create new things using the idea. So if we take this fact, Jesus is loving, that love was sacrificial and we should be sacrificial in the way that we love others. The next level would maybe be, we start to consider some ideas like this. Do you know the difference between appropriate self-sacrifice and unhealthy enabling? Right? That's a deeper level of understanding the sacrificial love of Jesus. Or can we evaluate whether or not taking that promotion at work or staying in our current position is a better form of applying the selfless love of Jesus? Like somehow it's related, somehow it should connect. Can we make that connection and make a wise decision? Or what about this? Can we model the sacrificial love of Jesus with our unique personality, so aligned with who we are when someone criticizes us? Is there a response that we could have that connects to the sacrificial love of Jesus? That would be kind of this next level proficiency. And that's, you can play around with it. There's lots of other things that we could throw out there. But the point is this, there's one level of knowing Jesus is loving and it's sacrificial and we should be sacrificially loving to others. And then there's this deeper level of understanding that requires something else where we're proficient enough that we can create a trajectory of life where we rely on and embody the sacrificial love of Jesus. If you didn't pay attention to anything I just said about Bloom's taxonomy of learning, I'm not gonna test you on this, but if you would just look at that phrase, can you see how there are aspects of that phrase that cannot be gotten out of a textbook, right? There are aspects of that phrase that require a deeper engagement and confrontation with the subject matter than just learning or, or kind of learning proper. I think part of what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in all of our lives is lead us to kind of some of those deeper levels, some of that greater proficiency in understanding who Jesus was and manifesting his life. And I think sometimes because we're human, we tend to look at other humans and be like, well, I know way more than that guy. And we're just stuck at that surface level and content to be there instead of being, uh, you know, challenged to these deeper levels. I, I think that's what's happening a lot of times when we see someone who knows a lot about Jesus but doesn't look much like them. And we're, it's capable, uh, like we're all capable of this. But part of that reason has to do with the individual's willingness to go to the deeper levels. And there is no external force that can force that upon us. This is what makes 12-year-old Jesus so relevant for us. As we see, even as an adolescent, even though he's Jesus... He is pressing in, he is asking questions, he is allowing people to ask him hard questions. I've observed this for years as a pastor. You know, we think about, well, how do we help people grow? We need a good discipleship program. We need spiritual disciplines. We need, hey, here's the 20 things you should do. Um, There's a variable that we cannot control, and it is the greatest predictor of success, I believe, when it comes to spiritual growth. It is uh, someone who who really says in their heart of hearts, I am not going to be content with the easy stuff. 
someone who really says in their heart of hearts, I'm not just going to rest on book learning that's easy to get, and I'm not going to rest there, but I'm going to go deeper. And if someone has that sort of internal motivation, then on some level, it doesn't matter what discipleship program we throw at them, they're going to grow spiritually. They're going to start looking like Jesus if they have that commitment to go to those deeper places with him. And if they don't have that commitment to go to those deeper places, then it doesn't matter what discipleship program we throw at them. Because there's a piece of this that comes from the inside. And when we say, I know I have some wounds, I know I have some sins, I know I have some unhealthy thinking in me, and I'm going to be humble enough to bring my brokenness to Jesus and learn to be whole. My observation is this, is that when people say that and they really mean it, um, they wind up becoming Christ-like. Nothing can stop it at that point. But it takes some deeper work. And if we're not willing to do the deeper work, we might accumulate knowledge. We might have the respect of so many people. You know, we might have authority and success in ministry, but we'll have all that stuff without being very Christ-like. And so I think the, the gist of it is this. This is what I think we're seeing in Jesus, and this is what I think we need to each of us see for ourselves. I'm going to allow Southern Baptist pastor Dallas Willard to sum it up for us. He said, the gospel is opposed to earning, not effort. So the gospel is opposed to earning, this idea that we are earning God's favor, or we're earning his love, or we're earning his forgiveness. That is an antithetical to the gospel. The gospel is opposed to that. It is freely given to us as a gift. But manifesting the life of Christ is not. It takes some effort. It takes some willingness to press in. It takes humility. It takes moments where we take a hard look in the mirror and say, why am I like this? God, help me. It takes the courage to say, I'm not okay in this area. It takes moments when we do what 12-year-old Jesus was doing, where we seek input into our life from people who know something. So here's the question for us. How seriously are we taking our own spiritual growth and development? Is that a priority for us? That will determine the trajectory of your spiritual growth. Are we just acquiring knowledge, authority, success, or are we humbly pressing in to face our own brokenness and surrender it to the love of Jesus so he can make us whole? Let me ask you to do something by way of application today. Um, it's just a simple prayer. I just want you to pray this if you have the courage to pray it. God, what is one effort that you're asking me to do today? What does prioritizing the deeper work look like in my life? Now, none of that is about getting him to love you because he's crazy about you. But there are things that he wants to do in you that are going to require some effort and that's what it's about. It's about surfacing those things. And I honestly think, like, you can sign up for a discipleship program or you can sign up for a seminary or you can sign up for an educational opportunity, but if you're not asking God that question, it's just going to look like growth. It's not going to actually be growth. Each of us will likely grow to the degree that we are open to seeking out his answers to those questions. His love never changes, but if we're not willing to go to those deeper places, that deeper work, um, we will feel it over time. 
We're going to close with communion. You see the tables here and in the back. Um, Beautiful tradition communion is. Uh, As I was thinking about it this week and how do we close with communion, it occurred to me um, there's something about communion that gets at this idea that we're talking about. You know, the bread and the juice, it represents the body and the blood of Jesus, and it represents the fact that Jesus died, his body was broken for our forgiveness, his blood was spilt as the new covenant, the promise of new life. But what do we do with the elements of communion? Like, don't just look at them. Oh yeah, that's the bread, it represents his body. What do we do with them? I'm worried that nobody shouted out the answer, eat them. It's going to make it very confusing in the next few minutes. <laughs> we eat them, right? We, we take them in. It's this beautiful picture of taking his life into our body. That is like the call of Christlikeness. The, the call of Christlikeness is not just to look at Jesus and to admire him and to like him and to know facts about him, but it is to do the deeper work, to give the effort to take in his manner of life so that it forever changes us, gives us new life. And so as we're taking the elements today, I just, I want you to consider this as you're uh, eating and drinking the elements of communion. Uh, Would you just consider why you're eating and drinking them? Because it's not enough just to know about it. You have to engage. You have to encounter it. Christ-likeness is not a subject to be learned. It is a way of life to be taken in. So this table's here. This table's back there. If you haven't already gotten the communion thing, as the music starts, I want to invite you to come forward and get the elements. You can take them as you feel led, just on your own. And I just want you, in the privacy of your own heart, just to have a moment where you sit in this and ask the question about the deeper work that God wants you to do. His body was broken for us, a sacrifice to forgive our sins. His blood was spilled, this new covenant, this promise of new life. So would we come to the table prayerfully and with a willingness to do the deeper work? Jesus, we come to you today grateful, grateful for your love, the most reliable force in the universe, your love, Lord. It it means so much to us, your your forgiveness. We'd be lost without it. But we also come to you today with an awareness that there's something you're asking of us. There's some deeper work that has to do with our soul and our brokenness of soul that you're inviting us into. And so, Lord, we yield to you with gratitude, but also with commitment to step into the effort that you've called us to. Let us not be those who know about you, but are not changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to the table.